Look with me in Galatians chapter 5, and let's remind ourselves of the context. Uh, We are looking particularly at verses 22 and 23 for nine weeks together. We slowed down because we said, you know, Galatians is... Uh, seems to be primarily focused on the idea of our justification. And Paul is in a life and death battle for the gospel in Galatia. That's the reason you see so much passion. That's the reason that you hear some very strong language in chapter 1. He picks it back up again in chapter 6, as we'll see later. Uh, He's very passionate because he feels as though the gospel itself among these people is being threatened by these false teachers. And so he focuses on... uh, one of the great mysteries of the Christian faith, and that is that our righteousness comes to us uh, as alien righteousness. It comes by uh, something that someone else did, and it's imputed to our account. It's an amazing thing. I mean, you won't find this anywhere in the world. There's no religion like this, where we receive something that's done perfectly for us. We just simply receive it by trusting in God. And at the same time, the sinful, corrupt life that we have lived in our thinking, in our speaking, in our doing, That's all imputed to somebody else, and he pays for it, namely the Lord Jesus Christ on Calvary's cross. And so we have this imputation of his righteousness to us, our sin to him, the great mystery of justification. And we've seen Paul teach that in very clear tones in the earlier parts of Galatians. Now we're looking at the second mystery of Christian redemption, and that is that we live our life by an alien power. The Holy Spirit comes into our lives and takes up resonance in us. This is a mystery. And we've seen that this is a contrast with the way that men live in this world by nature. We saw in verses 16 and 17 that the sinful nature, verse 17, desires what is contrary to the spirit and the spirit what is contrary to the sinful nature. So there's a war going on. The Lord Jesus takes takes up residence in our lives by the Holy Spirit and he lives uh, his life through us and there's this constant battle with our sinful nature. And the reason is, if you look at verse 19, the sinful nature just automatically, intuitively commits certain acts. This is what the sinful nature does. It commits sexual immorality. It is impure. It is debauched. Uh, it is idolatrous. It's involved in witchcraft. I mean, think of this. This is our, this is our fallen nature. We don't have to learn anything. We don't, have, we don't have to cultivate this. It's just given to us by virtue of being sons of Adam and Eve. Uh, we hate, we create discord, we're jealous, we have fits of rage, we're selfishly ambitious, um, we create dissensions and factions, we're envious, we're drunken, we, we get engaged in orgies and the like. Um, and then Paul says clearly those who, who are walking in the sinful nature and living that life out, they're not going to inherit the kingdom of God. Those who have been justified... Uh, will experience sanctification as well. They'll experience this life of the Spirit. And what's that like? Well, come to verse 22, we see what the, the fruit of the Spirit is like. If, you, if uh, you're an apple tree, you bear apples. If you're a Christian man, you bear this fruit on your tree. This is what your, your life looks more and more like. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And then Paul goes on to show that this is not contrary to the law. This is in keeping with the law. Against such things there is no law. That is, law-keeping, this is what law-keeping is. But it's law-keeping plus. It's law-keeping that is enabled by the power of the Spirit living in and through us. So it's the life of the Spirit, but it's in accord with the law of God. And then he shows us in verse 24 that those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the sinful nature. In other words, there's been a decisive act that has already taken place with respect to our natural sinful tendencies. They've been crucified. They've been put uh, to death. And furthermore, we see that we continue to put them to death. We li- since we live by the Spirit, verse 25, let us uh, keep in uh, step with the Spirit. Let us march along with the Spirit. Let us stay in line with the Spirit would be another way of putting it, and so on. So that's the life of the Spirit. And we've been looking at each of these, uh, the fruit of the Spirit, each of these traits. And today we come to this last one, the Spirit-filled man is self-controlled. Now what's really interesting about this word, self-controlled, and let me try to 
spell it for you in uh, English. It would be E-N, which means sort of N in our English, K-R-A-T, krat, which is a word that means power, uh, E-I-A, and kratia. That's, that's the word that we're dealing with in Greek. And krat means power, and N means to have power within yourself. It's self-control, having master, self-mastery, power over yourself. Now, uh, this is a classical word. Socrates used this word. He said it was one of the classical, uh, it was one of the cardinal virtues uh, and essential to the uh, virtuous life of any man. And Plato and Aristotle also picked up on it and wrote uh, quite extensively on it. So self-mastery, self-control was considered uh, the height of the, the classically virtuous man. Now later on, uh, if you're familiar with the name Philo, who was a contemporary of Jesus, a, a Jewish philosopher, uh, Philo taught that this word, ankratia, or self-control, was uh, similar to asceticism. So he took the idea of having mastery over yourself, and in Philo's terms, because he tended to be dualistic, that is, spirit is good, matter is evil, that we put down matter, that we're ascetic, and that's how we live the virtuous life. We simply put down the appetites, we deny them, and we are ascetic. Now, that's the background by the time you get to the Apostle Paul. Now, the word, interestingly, is not used in your Old Testament. It is in the Greek translation uh, of some intertestamental books, but not the Old Testament itself. So the Old Testament didn't use this concept. It's a Greek concept. Paul is picking it up here, and the apostles will do that on occasion. It's kind of like if we're teaching in the Bible, and we might use a certain phrase that comes right out of the Bible, but if there's a contemporary phrase, the preacher will often use that contemporary phrase, and people will giggle a little bit. But he's making a parallel to show what it means in contemporary times. And that's kind of what Paul is doing. He's using sort of a contemporary philosophical term that has academic and classical philosophical history and saying, look, the Spirit enables us to do this too, you know, but we just do it in a different way. And there's a big difference, although sometimes subtle, between classical ethics and Christian ethics. And I'd like, like for us to look at this for just a moment. <clears throat> How do we look at the virtuous life as Christian men as opposed to the classical approach, which had a lot to say about virtue and a lot to say about ethics? First of all, I'd, I'd like to bring to your attention that the classical approach uh, sees the source of good as being intuitive. In other words, there, there is the ideal of the good, but we achieve the good through, through our own innate moral power. So ethics are achieved by your, the use of your own intuition. Whereas the Christian approach is the source of good comes from above. In other words, God defines the good. For the, for the classic man, man defines the good. But from the Christian perspective, God defines good. In fact, we saw when we talked about goodness as one of the fruit of the Spirit that only God is good. In the Old Testament, you don't find anybody who's good except God. In the New Testament, only two people, right? So good is defined by God and defined by His law. It's given to us from above. The classical man would have said that the power for ethics comes within yourself. You're either a good man or you're not. The Christian says, no, any man can be an ethical man. All he must do is turn to the Lord and ask the Holy Spirit to come in and take over his life. So the very... Definition of good comes from God, and the power to achieve good comes from God. So we're looking outside of ourselves as Christian men. The classical man looks with inside himself. Secondly, in classical ethics, the, 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 the height of virtue is basically when all of the virtues are in balance. So we have a balanced life. And oftentimes virtue, from the classic perspective, is a balance between extremes. So, for example, I, I might be angry, but then I can be very passive. And the balanced man is right in the middle. He doesn't get too angry. He doesn't get too passive. The classic man would be a man who loved with passion, but he also had passivity. And so he didn't love too much, but he was, he was also able to control himself and be passive and, and almost indifferent at the same time. You see what I'm saying? So that virtue is the mean of two extremes. So it's the balanced life. 
Now, the Christian life, on the other hand, is a life that is simply Christ-centered. So we're not looking for the mean between two humanly derived virtues. We're looking for all out for Jesus Christ. And in that sense, you could say it's all to the extreme. (laughs) We're extremely in love with the Lord Jesus Christ. We want to be extremely obedient to him. I guess that's a redundant, actually. Obedience is either obedience or disobedience. But we want to be extremely passionate about him. We want to walk extremely close with him. So the Christian man uh, really puts his foot on the pedal uh, when it comes to virtue because it's Christ-centered. Thirdly, classical ethics, you're basically looking at the outer actions of the man. You're looking at the outside of the man, which, of course, makes sense because you're living life before men. And so ethics has to do with how others would evaluate you. But Christian life is lived in the presence of God, and therefore it's not just our actions, but our motives as well. So in Christian ethics, uh, and you see Jesus dealing with this as he's dealing with rabbis who have externalized the law of God from the Old Testament. And Jesus says, no, that's, that's not what the, the law meant all along. It had to do with your heart all along. And the rabbis simply made it external. And so you come up with your 613 laws that you're going to abide by externally. That's exactly what the classic man did. There was, there were, your actions were important. But the Christian says, no, God is concerned not only about your actions, but why you're doing it. So your heart comes under examination. Your heart is being developed as well as your external actions. And then lastly, I would just mention that the goal in classical ethics is honor. Uh, The man lives for his own honor. You never deny your own honor. Live an honorable life. Whereas in the Christian life, you find that the ultimate goal is God's glory. Now, God, in a sense, does honor his, his sons. And so as we walk with him, he lifts us up. But sometimes the, the non-Christian wouldn't be able to tell. We, we cover, we're, in, we're incognito right now. Sometimes, just like the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross, did he look very honored right there? Not at all. But he, he waited for his honor. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross and scorned the shame. And God exalted him to the highest place and honored him. And Jesus knew that even while he was suffering on the cross. Christian men know that right now, even though we are at times humiliated because of our faith in Jesus Christ. Our goal in our ethic is always to honor the Lord alone ultimately. So you see there's a difference then in the way that we would approach self-mastery and the way that the classical man would approach self-mastery. So you have to take that Greek word in kratia and bring it over here in this entire Christian and Pauline context to understand exactly what Paul means. And we'll pursue that as we look at it today. Well, secondly, you notice, first of all, then, the spirit-filled man is a self-controlled man. A man out of control is, is not a spirit-filled man. Uh, I can recall uh, in my early Christian days when I was trying to figure out more and more what did it mean to have the Holy Spirit lead your life. And I looked around and I thought, you know, I'm not sure I trust the Holy Spirit to lead my life. I mean, if you're telling me God's supposed to come in and take total control? I mean, what's he going to do to me? I, I look at some of these Pentecostals, you know, and I'm not, if that's what it means to let go and let God, I, I don't know if I want to go, uh, you know, I'm a you know, I was a Presbyterian expert before I became one. Uh, and so I'm thinking, you know, I, I don't know, you know. And if, for those of you who are Pentecostal, I mean, please don't take that. Uh, don't be offended. You know, I decided I want to be a Presbyterian. Uh, so now the Presbyterians are all mad at me too. Uh, but, you know, early on I was thinking, what, what would God do to us? I mean, if he just takes over, I mean, we kind of dragged along, you know, going where we don't want to go. Here, here's what happens. And it took me a while to figure this out that what happens is when God comes into your life and takes over, he takes over your interests. He takes over your passions. He takes over your, amb- your ambitions so that you are really, in a new sense, doing what you want to do. Now, I was doing what I wanted to do before I became a Christian. But let me tell you, I'm still doing what I want to do. And what's happened is the Lord, he doesn't, He doesn't use me against what I want to do. 
He takes me and changes me from the inside out so that I'm actually doing what I want to do. When Jesus went to the cross, he did say, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. But here's what I really want. I want your will to be my will. I want your will to be done. That's what I really want. So yes, at times we find ourselves in conflict because life is so painful, and yet what I really want, I want it, is God's glory. And that's what you find happening with God's control over you. This is the interesting thing about the use of this word, that really we're Christ-mastered. We're His slaves. We're His servants. But look what happens. When Christ takes over us, we, for the first time, actually gain mastery over ourselves so that under Christ serving Him, we're actually doing what we want and bring, and let's press it another level further, we're gaining pleasure for ourselves. We've, for the first time, found our real self-interest at heart, which is to follow Christ because the reward is beyond imagination. We're, we're not only doing what we want, but we're getting what we want. More than all the appetites that we ever tried to satisfy in this life, the Christian man knows how to get his appetite satisfied. It, here's self-control. It's also self-satisfaction. And it's self-interest. And sometimes people have more of a classical view of Christian ethics. Well, if I'm serving God, then I just deny my own self-interest. No. Au contraire, hop along. When we give ourselves to the Lord Jesus Christ, we are also giving ourselves to our best self-interest. And the same will be true with the experience of God's grace and our sufficiency. Remember, Paul prays for this thorn to be delivered out of his side three, time, three times. And the Lord says to him in first, Second Corinthians 12, My grace is sufficient for you. So Paul finds himself sufficient. You know what the word is for sufficient? It's really self-sufficient. So Paul is self-sufficient because he's grace-sufficient. So what happens is in this organic relationship with God through Christ, the sufficiency we have from this alien investment into our lives makes us sufficient. And we can truly say we're sufficient. We're self-controlled because God has changed our self so that now our self is seeking the kingdom of God and His righteousness. Because that's what Christ is seeking through us. That's how intimate our relationship is with us. He actually changes the way we think about what we want and what we're pursuing. That's the mystery of sanctification. That's the mystery of God taking up residence in our lives. So the Spirit-filled man is self-controlled because he's Christ-controlled. Now, the classic man would say, the Stoics later on uh, in, in Paul's day and a little later would have said that they found their freedom through denying their appetites. So by being stoical, they found freedom. Interesting, isn't it? In other words, by not being driven by these appetites, they were finding their freedom. But what the Christian says is, no, you found freedom by cutting your legs off. You found so you're, you're not going to walk. You're not going to walk into bordellos anymore. Why? Because you cut your legs off. Great. You just dehumanized yourself. You just willingly took truncated yourself. The Christian says, "No, keep your legs on, and get those legs to take you into the service of Jesus Christ." And there's your freedom. And now you're fully man, fully engaged in the mission of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's freedom. Is all of yourself not cut off, not denied that it existed but your full self fully engaged uh, in loving the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, let's notice something about self-control. Number two, not only is the spirit-filled man self-controlled, but self-controlled includes all of ourselves. Self-control includes all of self. First of all, it includes what we do. So here we agree with the classic man. Self-controlled life does involve the external life. Now, in the classical world, this world, in, this word in kratia would have the first implication, kind of like the implication of our word morality. Today, with church-going people, the first implication of that word, I'd have to say, is probably has to do with sexual morality. 
So if we just use the word morality, that's usually the first thing that comes to mind. So it was with this word. If you were to say live a self-controlled life, the first thing the classical man would have thought of, and in fact, uh, Plato and Aristotle emphasized it, what was the sexual life. And we see this in the scriptures. For example, if you look in uh, Galatians 5, look up at verses 19 and 20 and 21. What does the life of the sinful nature lead us to? What is the life that's out of control look like? Well, the first thing, look what Paul mentions, sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery. There you have it. It's one of the first signs of a man out of control, and I'll tell you why. It's one of the strongest passions in a man's life. I mean, you know, when I'm in premarital counseling, one of the things I think is important is for men and women to understand this huge gap that is between them. And I'm telling you, it's larger than they ever imagined, right? You old guys, it's larger than you ever imagined. I mean, I, eventually, I, what I want to convince these, this couple of is the man, you're speaking German, and the woman, you're speaking French. I mean, you all thought you were speaking the same language. No, you're, you're coming from two different worlds. And if you're going to love each other, you're not only going to learn about that other culture, that other gender, but you're going to go beyond what most people do, which is just to learn enough to make jokes about it. You're actually going to embrace it. And you're going to realize that, you know, God is blessing me through this because when he made man, he made him male and female in his own image. And so his image is on male and female. And I need to learn the female way of thinking and doing in order for me to know everything about God that he's revealed of himself in creation of human beings. So I'm going to embrace my wife and her way of thinking beyond just snickering at it, which I always do. But I'm going to embrace it and learn from it. And here's one thing that's different. The felt needs. And uh, if you just list the typical felt needs of the male and female, I'm telling you, if you put them on a list, if you pick the five top felt needs of the man and the five top felt needs of the woman, they don't have one felt need in common. Not one. The woman, her first thing is she wants you to be courteous. Courteous. That's a felt need. I don't have time to explain it this morning, but she, she feels that. She wants someone who's committed to the family and proves it in the way that he lives. And I could go on through the list. Well, the man, I think the first thing he's looking for is respect. Uh, he really, he won't admit it because he has such a big, fragile ego. But fact is, he really wants his wife to respect him. He just won't let her know how important that is because he's too proud to say so. And that's the reason he needs all that respect. But number two, and some people have this number one, is sexual appetite. And when we go through the list of needs, the woman's just sitting there, oh, no. You mean, is that that high? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And just as much as she wants you to be courteous to her, you want to roll around in the sheets, you know? It's very strong desire. And because it's strong, if you don't have an alien power in your life or you don't cut something off, you're probably going to get in trouble. That's, the, that's how bad it is. Well, look what happens when the Holy Spirit comes into your life. He changes your desires about what you're going to do with your sexual passions. He actually gives you a new mentality, a new appetite, a new desire to honor and glorify Him with your sexual life. And you'll find that in, for example, a classic text. If you want to turn over a few pages in your Bible to 1 Thessalonians, look with me just a moment. Paul takes up the topic there. He takes it up elsewhere. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 7, he actually, it's one of the rare occasions where he actually uses this very word again. But look in 1 Thessalonians, and here, here you have his teaching on it. I think probably in the best summary form. He says, it is, this is uh, 19, page 1941. He says in 1 Thessalonians 4, 3, it is God's will that you should be sanctified. That is, just live a holy life. And what's the first thing he mentions? By the way, before we leave that per the verse, sometimes guys will say, I just wish I knew what God's will for my life is. Well, there it is. That you live a holy life. There it is. And most guys, you know, spend so much time figuring out, well, I wonder what job God wants me to have. I wonder what woman God wants me to marry. I wonder what city he wants me to live in. I wonder what college he wants me to go to. You know what? It really doesn't matter. There are thousands of women out there you could marry. Just find one of them. 
You know, as the Puritans used to say, don't, don't marry a woman without whom you cannot live. Marry a woman with whom you can live. And there's a big difference between those two things. Because it's not the most important thing. After all, some of you that are deeply in love, maybe this makes you a little sad, but you're not going to be married in heaven. You know, all these funeral messages, oh, I can't wait to see Martha. You know, he can't wait to see Martha. They're going to embrace and just be married forever. No, they're not. They're brother and sister. That's their eternal relationship. Now, they'll be closer to each other in heaven than they were here as husband and a wife. That's true. But we have one marriage. It's to the Lord Jesus Christ. And that one's going to be great. In fact, it'll be perfect. Uh, and so we don't get all bound up in things that really are temporal. So you want to know what the Lord's will is? Spend your time concerning yourself with His will. And here's His will. Whatever's in the Bible for you, that's His will for you. And here it is. Live a holy life. And He starts off, He must be writing mostly to men here, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control His own body. So your body comes under your control. Your sexual appetite comes under your control. It, it is, you know under the control of your sanctified mind in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the heathen. There you have it. We distinguish ourselves through our sexual lives. As we've said before in here, our sexual life tells other people who our God is. Your God always leads to your sexual life. If you look at the pagans, they have many gods, and therefore it's quite all right to have Many sexual partners. God is fickle. He's capricious. He's unpredictable. And so you just, you go to the temple and have sex with the temple prostitutes, trying to please God in some way. And so the, your sexual life is a reflection of God's relationship. And when Moses, or rather when Joshua and the people came into Canaan, they got rid of those gods. And they remembered that their marriage covenant is a reflection of God's covenant with them. That's the reason for our Christian sexual morality. It's a reflection of God's relationship with His people. It's faithful. He doesn't have several wives. He's got one wife, the church, and He loves her, and He cultivates her, and He's patient with her. Therefore, our marriages, they imitate the marriage that God has with His people. That's the reason for our sexual morality. It's profoundly theological. And here you have the apostles showing that. We're not like the pagans. We have a different God. These pagans, he says in verse 5, do not know God. That's the problem right there. It's theological more than it is sexual. And that in this matter, no one should wrong his brother or take advantage of him. So we realize that in pagan sexuality, we're simply using other people for our satisfaction. The Christian ethic in sexual morality is that we use ourselves for the benefit of other people. This is another gap that men have to cross. When they're getting married, they had, they had all these previous ideas of what a great sex life would look like. And they were all built on the male enjoyment of sexuality. I'm telling you what, gentlemen, these women have a very different idea of what's satisfying in their sexual relationship with their husband. They come with very different thoughts. The man who really loves is the one who lear le learns the female mentality about sexuality, enters into her world, serves her, according to her own terms, in order that through her sexual relationship with him, she might be built up and strengthened and served and satisfied. That's the way that the Christian man does it. And it's only by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so you see that sexual morality for the pagan is to have as much fun as you can have or to deny it altogether, uh, so the Stoic might say. But you see here there's another issue. The Lord will punish men for all such sins as we have already told you and warned you. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. The Christian believes he lives in the presence of God and that he doesn't dismiss God at the bedroom door. God comes in the bedroom too. He's there. We're living before his face and therefore we're living for his satisfaction. And all of our rewards and all of our satisfaction will ultimately find their fulfillment when God comes to judge all the earth. Now that's just one issue you can see where self-control comes into play and how it comes into play. God comes over, comes over us into our lives, takes over the appetite and the very focus of our sexual life, what we're trying to accomplish through our sexual lives, and it reorients everything contrary to the way we would do it by nature. Secondly, you look at food and drink, and this also was an external uh, 
human experience that the classical man said was very much involved in self-control, that involves your food and your drink. What's really interesting is in Ephesians 5.18, Paul takes this head on. He compares the spirit-filled life with the life of drunkenness. He says, do not be drunk with wine, which leads to debauchery. Rather, be filled with the spirit. So rather than being intoxicated with wine, and which then leads to the expression of all these natural impulses, which Paul speaks of in Galatians 5, See, by the drinking of wine, you're dumbing down your enlightened mind and your Christ-centered passions. You're numbing those, and now the natural impulses come to the surface. Most of you who've gotten into sexual trouble, who've said things you wish you hadn't said, who've gotten into behavioral trouble of one kind or another, it was usually mixed with drugs or alcohol. Am I right? That's what happens. We're numbing the life of the Spirit in our lives and allowing the, the debauched, sinful nature come to the surface. That's what happens. If Paul says in Ephesians, don't do that. Don't be filled with wine. Be filled with the Spirit. Be full of Him. Have your life influenced by Him, not influenced by drugs or alcohol. And in Ephesians, uh, Philippians 3, rather, he says the very characteristic of the pagan man is his God is his belly. That's a bad God. It's a bad God. And so many do in the way that we eat and consume things. Thirdly, the classical man would have said that self-control has to do with speech, and certainly Paul includes that as well. Uh, You see that in Ephesians 4.29 where he says, don't let anything unwholesome come out of your mouth, but only what is useful for building other people up. Wow. How are we doing? <laughs> I'm, I'm not doing so well. You know, preachers uh, use their mouth for a living. And I'm telling you what, our mouths get us in a whole lot of trouble. Because as you know, if you know us personally, we're not only talking when we're up front, we're just talking all the time. And we just often say whatever comes to mind. Sometimes we say things before they come to mind. <laughs> and that's when you really get into trouble. And what Paul is saying, you know, Paul was a verbal person too. And he would basically say from personal experience, God came in and took over his speech. I've told you all before, I can remember right after my conversion, and I I had a pretty good vocabulary before I was converted. It had nice diversity to it. I had several ways that I could curse, several pretty ugly words I could use for various occasions. And I found I was quite apt at applying just the right words, just the right occasion. And it was pretty free-flowing. I mean, it was becoming really intuitive. I could just do it at the drop of a hat. And I remember after my conversion, I was repairing a window. And the thing, it was an old window, you know, that you have the pulleys and the, the weights. You know, it was really an old house. And the rope broke, and the window came, wham, hit me right in the head. And I was seeing stars. Well, just a few weeks before that, mo- that very moment, I would have had an array of very interesting words to apply to that moment. But I found, I just, I just caught myself and just fell back and said, oh, Lord, help me. And I thought, wow, wow, what did I just say? <laughs> I mean, I couldn't believe myself. What just happened to me? Something else had taken over my life. Someone else had taken over my life. And although I've made many uh, verbal mistakes since then, used many words I shouldn't have used in many occasions. Perhaps I've done it in Amen Bible study from time to time. Uh, generally speaking, there was a new master in my heart, and it affected my speech. And you need to ask yourself, have I really given my lips and my tongue to the Lord Jesus Christ for his use? Have I given it over to him? Am I self-controlled in my speech? Is the self that has received Jesus Christ as Savior in control of those natural impulses to speech out, speak out wrongly? Fourthly, you'll find it in our spending externally. Jesus says in Luke 12 that man's life does not consist in the abundance of his purchases, the abundance of his possessions. His life does not consist in how many things he can consume or how many things he can put in his attic, in his garage. It's just amazing to me. 
All these things we buy, they end up stored somewhere, you know? And it, and we think of our success as how many of these cool little things we've gotten and these cool big things, things we don't even have time to use. It's amazing how much we consume. All you have to do is just go visit my friend Raju just for just a few days. Just go there for just a few days and then just come back. That's about all you need to do. And you just can't believe all of the things that Americans can consume almost without thinking. When the Holy Spirit comes into your life, there's a new simplicity. Life is complex. Actually, God is complex. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that's complex. But there's a simplicity within the complexity. And for the Christian, amidst all the complexity of life, there's a simplicity. It is all for and about Jesus Christ. That simplifies everything. So when we look at our spending habits, it's all about Him. Is our checkbook under the Lordship of Jesus Christ? Have we become His stewards so that now we actually desire to spend the way He wants us to spend so that we now have self-control over our spending habits? And for some of us, that's very difficult, I know, because I think probably in the female world, this may be a little bit more of a problem. But if a woman's depressed, a lot of them just need to get out and go shopping. I mean, I'm serious. That'll solve their depression. And there's some men like that too. But men are a little different. When the men go shopping to relieve their depression, they don't just get a series of a lot of little things. No, they go get the big thing. <laughs> That's the way they try to relieve their depression and make themselves feel important. Get control over yourself by giving control of that over to the Lord. Live in His presence. Realize His eyes are over your checkbook, over your estate, over your will, everything that you're doing. Uh, just tomorrow night, we've got a foundation, a Second Presbyterian Church foundation dinner. What's that foundation all about? It's for Second Presbyterians or anybody else who wants to participate, but primarily it's for Second Presbyterians to live their whole financial lives under the gaze of the Lord Jesus Christ and to get it all under His control. So we're not just talking about the tithe on current income. We're talking about everything over which you have control is going to be under Christ's control. That's what the foundation is there for, to help our members get their whole lives, their whole estates, all their spending, all their saving, all their control in life under His control so that their lives are self-controlled. And that's what self-control means. Get a grip. Get Christ to get His grip on everything about you. Not just your speech, but your spending. And then lastly, for those of us who are control freaks, this is a very important one, that we realize we don't, as Jesus said, rule it over other people like the Gentiles. We don't just boss people around. We don't take advantage of them to accomplish our goals. We don't pay them as little as we can pay them to get the most we can get out of them to increase the bottom line. And the pagan man looks at the bottom line, and that defines his success, and it does not define the success of a Christian man. A Christian man is self-controlled, which means he looks at his business and his whole operation through the eyes of Christ, and he has multiple stakeholders. He has stakeholders who are investors in that business. He has stakeholders who are his neighbors with whom he's doing business. He has customers who are stakeholders. He has employees who are stakeholders. And he is the one who sacrifices himself to advance the cause of all the stakeholders. That's the role of the Christian CEO. That's the role of the Christian manager and supervisor. That's the role of the Christian worker is that he's looking for the interests of other people. Now, if we're husbands and fathers, we have stakeholders, including our own children, our families, who are stakeholders in what we do as well. We're serving all these stakeholders. We don't take advantage of any of them. If we're taking advantage of any of them, we're not self-controlled. We've all of a sudden allowed these debauched uh, ideas that are here in Galatians 5.20 to take over our lives, selfish ambition to take over our life. That's from our flesh. And we're going to live our lives in such a way that we're advancing every one of those stakeholders. That's the goal of the Christian man. That's the self-controlled life. You've got a grip on yourself. You know what your role is. And now you're serving everybody else. 
It's not only, gentlemen, in what we do. We have to move more quickly here. It's in what we think. And back to the Christian distinctive of self-control, we're going to get control not only of what we do on the outside. We've got to get control of our minds. You know, I'm, I'm happy to say I've, I've never had a sexual affair except with my wife. I, I'm grateful for that. I'm so bad that it's very possible that that wouldn't have been the case. There are other things I've done that I can't say I've never done this, I've never done that. I'm just so glad that I, but I'll tell you this, according to biblical definition, I probably had 10,000 affairs because I can look at a woman and say, that's nice, I wonder what that would be like. And all of a sudden, I just had an affair with her. That's what Jesus said. She doesn't know it, I'm thankful for that. But, and there are times when I'm thinking, you know, it'd just be a lot easier to gouge the eyes out and get this over with, you know, just, just, I wouldn't have a problem. Well, then I'd find, yeah, you really do have a problem because you still got your brain. <laughs> you still got your flesh. You're still out of control. You don't even have to have eyes. So what we find is that the Christian self-control is getting self-control over your thinking. And look how Jesus put it in Matthew 5. It's not just, it's not just committing adultery. It's lusting after a woman. And look how John puts it in his first epistle. The lust of the eyes, the pride of life. This is where sin is born. This is where it's generated. It's right here in our inner self. We've got to get control of ourselves. And we do it in several ways. We address several issues. First of all, lust. Secondly, anger. It's not just what we say in anger. It's the anger itself. And we need to ask the Holy Spirit to come in and deal with our anger, which includes vengeance. I mean, you find Moses. What was Moses' big problem? The reason Moses didn't go in the promised land, it was uncontrolled anger. He wasn't self-controlled. The Lord said, speak to the rock in Numbers 20. And Moses thought, well, I'll just do it like I did the first time. He hit the rock. And it was just as though he hit God himself. And water came forth. God was gracious. But God said, because you did that, Moses, in anger, you'll not go into the promised land. It was tragic. And so many of us have surrendered certain healthy relationships because we didn't control our anger on the inside and our sense of vengeance. And I think for men, this is one of the strongest impulses to wreak vengeance, to get even, to even the score, to restore our pride, to restore our honor. And this is where the Christian ethic differs distinctively even from the best ethics the classical world can give us. We don't restore our honor God restores our honor in due time. We leave it with Him. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. And the Christian man, filled with the Spirit, believes that the Spirit is going to bring about the end of the age as He has promised, and we'll wait for our honor at that time. And now we will glorify the Lord by humbling ourselves under His almighty hand. And we'll wait for Him to exalt us in due time. And therefore, we will not exercise vengeance. Thirdly, you see that our thinking about greed and envy is often brought to us in the Scriptures to bring under the control of the Holy Spirit. We won't have time to go into that, but it's vicious, greed and envy. How much of what we do we allow to be motivated by these lower, natural, fleshly, carnal motivations. Spirit-filled man is getting a grip on that. He's asking himself, why am I doing this? Why am I saying that? Why am I reacting that way? Is it for the Lord's glory? Is it because I'm trying to satisfy my carnal desires? The spirit-filled man gets control of his thinking. And worry and fear, this is a big one. You see Jesus addressing it. He says, why do you worry? He said, look at the grass of the field. I clothe the grass of the field. Look at the birds of the air. I give them food to eat. You think I don't love you more than grass? You think I don't love you more than little birds? I do. I'm going to provide for you. Therefore, don't worry about all these things. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and He will give all of these things to you as well. That's the teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ. Be done with worry. Ask yourself, what am I worried about? Why am I spending time worrying about this and being anxious over it? I find things, you know, with five children and a couple of grandchildren, I find myself, I can, be, I can get into worry. And, anxiety, and I don't typically worry a whole lot, but I could get worried about my kids. And I'm saying, now why am I doing that? 
Am I helping my kids by doing that? Is it actually changing their circumstances for me to worry about this? It doesn't help one bit. And it's taking my mind away from things that enable me actually to do some good for somebody else. So I'm just allowing myself to be out of control with this anxiety and worry. Now, how do we deal with all this stuff? We've got six minutes to deal with this. It really has to do, see, with whom we worship and what we worship. You see in Galatians 5, 20, the first word is idolatry, witchcraft. The root of all of this is who are you worshiping? And, you know, as one of my pastoral colleagues here says, we in East Memphis are great at worship. We worship our clothes. We worship our jobs. We worship work. We worship our golf game. We worship our vacations. We worship our houses. We worship the cars we drive. We're great at worship. Our problem with worship is we pick the wrong one to worship. And that's what happens with the carnal controlled life. You've picked out the wrong thing to worship. Your passions are going full blaze, but they're all in the wrong direction because you're devoted to the wrong God. And what happens with a spirit-filled life is that we then begin to worship the God who really is. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We begin to bow down before Him. We give Him tribute. We give Him our emotions. We give Him our ambitions. We give Him our sexual lives. We give Him our bodies. We give Him our speech. We give Him our dreams. We give Him everything, our affections, which is the first thing listed here. We give Him our affections. We seek Him first. And this is the only power that drives out the other idols in your life. It's the power of loving God. And I'd have to say psychologically this is how it works. Spiritually, theologically it works by God coming in and taking over your life and transforming you. Psychologically what's happening is that you are falling in love with God in a new way. And that love drives out these other idols. It's like this. When you were a young man before you got married, you may have dated several women. You may have found several of them interesting. You may have pursued a romantic relationship with them. You may have connected heart to heart with several women. But when the woman, the woman, comes into your life, it drives out all these other women. You won't have conversations with them like that anymore, not if you're living a life loving to your wife. If you're in love with your wife, you're not going to have any more romantic pursuits. In fact, you'll cut them off at the pass. You can sense any manipulation coming your way, and that's what seduction is. It's a form of manipulation, and you give it the old stiff arm in a nice gentlemanly way. You don't even get into those situations where you could possibly be seduced or to seduce somebody else. Why? Because you got the woman you love, and out of honor and love for her and devotion to her, it drives out the other women. You need God in your life to drive out all these false gods who are claiming to be God, but they're not God. These other women might claim to be your wife. They might claim to be your lover. They might claim your affection, but they're not your wife. you got one wife, and that's the way it is with the Lord Jesus Christ. you got one bridegroom. Drives out all the others because you're in love. So what happens is when you're in love, all these other temptations that are coming to you, all these other voices, all these other forms of living, all these other gods, they're cheap substitutes. As far as you're concerned, you found the one you want because he found you and he rescued you and he loved you and you're going to be devoted to him. That's what it is. It's your affections that enables you. Then secondly, out of those affections become a number of disciplines. And I just want to refer to this. This is an important usage of this word, enkratia. Paul uses it four times. But here probably is one of the most useful places where he uses it in 1 Corinthians 9.25. You'll find this on page 1855. Back up to verse 24. This is 1 Corinthians 9.24. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into inkratia, strict training, discipline. So if you want to have a self-controlled life, hey, look, you want to be a good athlete, did you do it with just, just show up, you know, for the big game? You know, you want to play football, you just, hey, coach, I'll be there, you know, 30 minutes before the big game, see you there. You're going to get to play? No way, Jose. You better be in practice for hours and hours, for weeks and weeks, spring training, summer training, 
and then lots of training in the fall, and then you might get in the game. And if you get in the game, it's because you've been trained in practice, and you've, you're disciplined, and you know what to do on various plays, and you hear what's being called, and you know what to do. That's exactly the way it is with self-mastery. That out of your affection for Christ, you put yourself in His training. And that involves several things here. We've got a couple of minutes. Let's just look at these briefly. Your worship. How do you expect to have a spirit-controlled life when you're not bringing yourself into His presence privately and corporately? This is the reason church worship is so important. You're just bringing yourself in His presence to delight in Him, to rekindle your affections, which is psychologically at the heart of everything you're doing. Rekindle your affections and get your marching orders and enter into the discipline of giving Him tribute. He's the King. Get into that discipline. If you'll do it on the Lord's Day, then on Tuesday, you'll still be giving tribute to Him. There's a, there's a washover throughout the rest of the week. In His Word, secondly, the discipline of His Word. He's talking to you. He has a few sermons He'd like to give you. All those sermons are right there in the book. That's the reason we're in Amen Bible Study. We need the discipline of studying His Word. Reading His Word every day, studying it at least once a week. Sunday afternoon is a great time to do that. A little less NFL, a little bit more studying the Bible in depth. Some guys feel like they never have time to study the Bible for really an hour or two, really soaking it in, studying a book of the Bible. Sunday afternoon is a great time for that. Prayer, daily prayer, weekly prayer, private prayer, corporate prayer. Get these disciplines in your life. If you want to have self-discipline, if you want to have self-mastery, you're not going to get it apart from the discipline. Fellowship, having relationships where you care for somebody, you share with others, and you're held accountable. That's the reason for the small groups and amen and other small groups in your churches to be in relationship so that we're holding each other accountable for the self-controlled life. And lastly, ministry. Do you have an identifiable ministry beyond your family? Do you know whom you're serving and how you're serving them? Do you know how you're using your spiritual gifts to edify other people? Being in discipline. One thing ministry does for us is it simply gets us on the road with the Lord Jesus Christ. When the disciples were ministering with Jesus, they were getting to know Jesus in a way that they didn't get to know Him when they just sat out. So all of these disciplines are not for the purpose of making ourselves feel miserable. These disciplines are for the purpose of getting to know Christ better, rekindling our affections, and learning over and over how to live for Him. The power of the flesh is so great that without this intentional, disciplined life, you'll never gain self-control. But by the Holy Spirit, in the life of the Spirit, keeping in step with the Spirit, men like myself, who are carnal, base, debauched in every way by nature, can actually gradually be transformed to be more and more like Jesus Christ. What a great gospel. What a wonderful Spirit. What a great God who would come into our lives and bear this luscious fruit of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Let us pray. Father, please bear in our lives the fruit of Your Spirit. Take up residence and take over so that we may experience self-control. And may we do it all in our acting, our speaking, and our thinking and feeling so that You, Lord Jesus Christ, would be glorified. We make our prayer in your name. Amen.